Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. Former MSNBC host Keith Olbermann once called him the second worst person in the world for charging people for a plane crash. Yeah, there's another side to the story, but we don't want to hear that. He's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. Well, thanks for reminding me of that one, Seth. (laughs) My pleasure. (laughs) Well, if you haven't yet finalized your New Year's resolutions yet, make sure to add Airlines Confidential to your list, but also listen to NPR Here and Now so you can hear transportation analyst Seth Kaplan. Uh, Too kind, Ben. Uh, Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential. I feel bad now about saying what I said about you. Uh, The the show where (laughs) we share the secrets, thank you, of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. We're going to talk about the most important aircraft order ever. Yeah, you know me well enough by now to detect a little sarcasm in my voice there. Uh, But there's a reason we're talking about this one. We'll let Ben tell his side of that story. Uh, Let him try to convince us he's not the second worst person in the world. We'll correct a very important error from a previous episode. Yeah, there's a little sarcasm in my voice, too. And we'll do something a little different this week in Finer Wine. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Well, it's the aircraft order everyone was waiting to hear about. Am I talking about Qantas saying it plans to use the Airbus 350-1000 to operate the longest flights in the world from New York and London to Sydney? No! I'm talking, of course, about Congo Airways ordering two Embraer 175 jets. Not even the newly re-engined E2-175s, if you're wondering. These are the same 175s Embraer has been producing for years. Congo Airways serves 14 cities and towns across the Democratic Republic of Congo, plus Johannesburg in South Africa, that according to CH Aviation. At the same time, it's getting rid of two Dash 8 Q400 turboprops. It's looking to replace its A320s with smaller but newer technology A220-300s, and it might buy ATR42 turboprops, even though it's getting rid of those larger Dash 8 Q400 turboprops. Ben, why in the world are we talking about this? Well, either, Seth, you're trying to appeal to the geekiest of airline uh, geeks in the world, or you're thinking there's a metaphor here for even a bigger topic. <laughs> yeah, that's what I had in mind. Uh, you know, we try to make this show relevant for for the geeks, but but also just for the general traveling public and you know, for people who work in the industry. So, so let's talk about what does this tell us uh, here where we're talking about turboprops, about larger what you still might call regional jets but these aren't sort of the 50 seaters that first came out around the turn of the century these are the uh 175s they'll hold i think ch aviation said uh 76 seats in this configuration uh eight eight business class and the rest economy so what's going on here and what does congo airways move here tell us about about the broader industry (laughs) well you know this is a complicated subject in a lot of ways because if you go back to the beginning of what is now known as the rj or the regional jet which are mostly made by Embraer of Brazil and Canada Air up in Canada that makes the Bombardier regional jet. And I'm sure many of our listeners have flown on these and as, you know, as Delta Connection or American Eagle or one of the regional carriers in the U.S. Yeah. 
Um, but those planes were originally a way to replace turboprop airplanes or airplanes that have two big propellers on the wings typically. And they were justified for a couple of reasons. First of all, airline pilot contracts tend to be restrictive about what the airline can do and how much they have to pay the pilots for flying different types of planes. Part of those contracts includes a term called the scope clause. And the scope clause, as it suggests, defines the scope of services that are covered by the contract. And back in the 90s, most pilot scope clause didn't cover smaller airplanes. They talked about airplanes over 100 seats, sort of the 737s and A320s of the day. And airlines in their regional operations were able to bring jet services in with lower pilot costs because they could have their regional carriers fly them and not be covered by the airline's pilot contract. It's out- outsourcing we're talking about here, outsourcing yeah. the provision of this service to to other companies. That's right. and then, or, or it could be a subsidiary of the airline. But anyway, not not the mainline jet, you know, not pilots flying under the terms of American Airlines pilot contract, for example, or Delta or United. That's right. And then to make it even more complicated, not only did the airlines think they could save costs in their in their pilot ranks anyway, by bringing in the RJ versus a big jet not necessarily save costs versus a turboprop, but versus a big jet. They rationalized it by convincing themselves using data models available at the time that customers actually preferred flying on a jet enough more than a turboprop that they would actually carry more customers and more people would want to fly that airline, especially if they had the choice of a regional jet on me versus a turboprop on my competitor. So based on those two effects, airlines bought lots of 50-seat jets and then later lots of 70-seat jets. But as fuel prices increased and as the economic reality of flying smaller airplanes came about, airlines realized that these planes, while they're nicely sized for many smaller markets, they still aren't as efficient as bigger jets. So the idea that these Q400s and turboprops and ATR42s and things are still flying is not because the people who are flying them can't afford to get the bigger jets. It's because they're actually more efficient airplanes and the whole idea that customers would revolt against a turboprop or be enough more comfortable with a regional jet that they would actually buy more tickets didn't really prove out to be all that true. So now you see turboprops flying around the U.S. and around the world, regional jets flying in the U.S. and around the world. And when you see a case like Congo doing what they're doing, my guess is that their turboprops had gotten so old and they're probably getting these E-175s that aren't the newest planes in the world, right? (laughs) And they're probably getting them and saying, look, we can make our trips a little bit faster and maybe a little bit easier for our customers. And I'm sure it's just a more range, Some more range too, right? I mean, these these planes can do certain things that turboprops can't, uh, as you said, faster, but also they can fly farther. So there are certain missions where a turboprop just isn't a choice because even the, the most modern turboprops have their limits and and these regional jets can generally fly farther 
Yeah, the other thing I would mention, too, that our listeners might be interested in is uh, for those who want to save the planet like we all should, the turboprops actually are greener airplanes than the regional jets. They actually put out, you know, uh, fewer emissions and they're a more of just a more efficient kind of vehicle. But they are a little bumpy and they're loud for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, they they, right. So so a turboprop carrying, let's say, about 70 seats might burn about the same amount of fuel as a 50 seat regional jet, a very roughly speaking for for uh, for the same trip. It's interesting because we've gone through those cycles that you described. I mean, around the turn of the century, regional jets, the 50 seaters showed up and everybody thought turboprops were a thing of the, fa- of the past. And for anybody old enough to remember the first getting, time getting on a 50 seater, you know, nowadays you get on one, you're like, I wish this was something else maybe. But the first time you got on a 50 seat jet instead of a turboprop was awesome. You know, and, and as you said, airlines use that as a competitive advantage. People thought turboprops were going away. Then fuel got expensive the first half of this decade, and turboprops kind of had this resurgence. Uh, and 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 now uh, it's all kind of maybe stabilized to where yeah, turboprops are still selling to some degree. One quick question, maybe this one a little more for the geeks: Why do the ATR turboprops? Remember, we just mentioned Cargo Airways is buying ATR forty twos, even though they're getting rid of the Bombardier Dash eights. Why do why are the ATR quickly been uh, selling better than the competing Bombardiers? Well, I think it's just because there's a lot of them available and it's a real proven airplane. That airplane's been flying for decades and it's a, and, and uh, engineers know it, pilots know it. It's got a great safety record, a great uh, track record of safe operational flights all around the world. And it has had some issues in real icing kind of conditions. So you don't see it in the north quite yeah. as much as you see it more around the equator in the world. You see, a, you see them in India, for example, as, as well as in the south of the U.S. But it's just a real good airplane. And, uh, you know, in aviation terms, you can get one for a dime today, basically. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> now I'd like to take our first question. Speaking of fleet here, good one from Dan. Dan in Worcester, Massachusetts. Dan writes, hi, guys. I love the podcast. It's officially at the top of my must listen list every week. Thanks, Dan. Uh, My question, this is Dan speaking again now, has to do with Delta's apparent love for old planes, perhaps inherited from their Northwest legacy. We hear so much about their peers in the U.S. and abroad rushing to retire their elderly airframes, but Delta has managed to keep flying planes like the early 757s, 767s, and of course the venerable DC-9, MD-80, 90, 717s. I mean, the DC-9s are gone, but you know, that that family. Uh, So much longer, Dan says, than everyone else. Any thoughts as to how they're able to do it and still keep running such a great operation? Uh, very excited to hear your thoughts and thanks. This is great, Ben. Let me start by asking you if there's an analogy here that applies. If someone has a old Honda Civic, 10 years old, has 120,000 miles on, it still runs okay, but requires occasional repairs, then this person is thinking about buying a new Honda Civic doing the math the new car is going to have better fuel efficiency it's not going to need those repairs but it is going to carry new car payments uh so so you have those capital costs essentially but maybe lower operating cost is that a similar calculation to the one airlines make when they decide whether or not to buy uh, new planes 
It is similar. It's um, it's a little more complicated, even in the car example, though, because the new Civic is probably going to have more safety features. Even the Civic might have a, a backup camera, for example. Yeah. Right. And uh, and some things that make it a safer car to drive than your 10 year old Civic. And a new airplane is going to have newer technology probably newer engines and certainly just the fact that it's new will make it probably lighter weight, lower cost to maintain, burn less fuel. So there's there's advantages that come along with that big capital cost, but the analogy is absolutely sound, Seth. I think the issue here is that Delta can do it because they have a competency that is unique among the big three airlines, which is they're really, really good at keeping older airplanes safe and flying. They have a whole division called Delta Tech Ops that does work for Delta Airlines, but it's owned by Delta, but Delta Tech Ops does work for other airlines as well. And they just have built this competency over the years to keep older planes flying in ways that customers don't even sort of notice because Delta invests a lot in the interiors of the plane. One difference about your 10-year-old Civic is that the inside of the car is going to look 10 years old. (laughs) And you can have a 15, 20-year-old MD-80 or you know, 20, 30 year old 757, but you put all new sidewalls in it, you put all new overhead beams, you put new seats, you put in-flight entertainment in it, and inside it looks like a brand new airplane. And the customers who get on that airplane won't even stop to think, I wonder how old this plane is. They'll say, this looks nice inside, this is a new plane. And you can do that with older planes. So when you invest in the interior so that customers like what they're sitting in and what they see, and you have the technical capability to keep the plane flying because you've got lots of mechanics, lots of experience with these planes, you can have a sustainable cost advantage versus your competitors like American and United who don't aren't as good at that as you are. And so their way to keep things fresh is to go buy those real expensive new planes, pay that new capital cost, and then, of course, make you pay for it with higher fares. <laughs> so then back to the car analogy, it's almost as if the person with the old car is a mechanic and knows that they can fix the car more inexpensively than somebody else. And then that might bias that poor person toward, toward holding on to the older car. Does that make sense, Ben? Yeah, it does make sense. And not only that, but they also, if they could say, and I'm not only a mechanic, Another person in my family, my my partner, my wife, whatever, is good at sort of uh, with cloth and fixing things. And they're going to put all new seat covers on this thing and they're going to put a new yeah. panel on it and they're going to put a new satellite radio. And so when when I carry friends in this car, they're, they're not even going to think know. it's 10 yeah, years old. The, uh, the upholstery, all of it. And I do remember walking through Tech Ops once. I was there and, and that's when I really got it. It is massive. You can't you just can't imagine. And there are planes. I mean, I think only half of what's happening there is for Delta, but that's the thing. They have managed to bring in all this work from other airlines and they have so much scale there. I mean, if you're flying on a plane operated by any airline around the world, there's a decent chance it is maintained there by Delta, the airframe, the engines. And and so they just have scale that other airlines don't have. Other airlines, by the way, if you're wondering, well, why don't they do that? I mean, American tried doing that and it just didn't work. Part of it is that Delta has this 
well-paid but non-union maintenance workforce, just a lot of flexibility that some of its competitors don't have. For, for whatever reason, they've just really gotten that down. Back again to the car analogy, part of your calculation is going to be based on you know, how much do you drive? And uh, if you drive a lot, then the fuel savings from the new car might offset the capital cost, you know, the car payments in that case. Uh, whereas if you do not drive a lot, uh, maybe it's just better to hold on to the other cars. And a lot of what Delta does is uses its older planes as basically the flexible fleet that it might park during periods of low demand and just get them up in the air when, when everybody wants to fly and when fares are high enough to cover uh, the, the higher fuel cost of the older airplane. That's right, Seth. And the last point I'll make is really a a shout out to the old Northwest management team, many of whom are at Delta <laughs> now. <laughs> and Northwest identified this in the early 90s that many of the routes they flew from their hub in Minneapolis and, and Detroit were, you know, short flights to places like Fargo and Buffalo, New York and things like that. And um, nothing wrong with those cities, but they, they recognize that we don't have to have the highest technology, the, the newest model airplane flying these hour, hour and a half feeder flights into our hub. As long as the cabin is clean, as long as the seats are new, as long as everything looks good, why not fly these planes longer when they're just flying back and forth to the hub, sitting there for a long time while people connect, not the highest utilization of the of the fleet. And if we're going to in, have to invest in a new plane, make it the one that's going to fly, you know, 14 hours to Asia or eight to 10 <laughs> hours to Europe or something like that. And Northwest like did that in spades and Delta had tech ops long before they bought Northwest. But I think some of the Northwest management that came to Northwest in that merger really sort of pushed that idea further. And Delta has a real sustainable cost advantage because of it. It's a true competence of that company and something yeah, they can, really can leverage. I make a shameless but relevant plug here for, uh, for, for the book that Jay Shabbat and I wrote about Delta several years ago. It's uh, Go for know, it. The, the, uh, no, I, I remembered it. I just found it here. There's a chapter in the book. Okay, so each chapter is basically one year. The book is called Glory, Lost, and Found, How Delta Climbed from Despair to Dominance in the Post-9-11 Era. It's a turnaround story about Delta. And so each chapter is, is a year uh, of, of Delta's post-9-11 history. And then each, along with the year, the chapter title is a quote that we pulled from somewhere in the chapter. So the 2006 chapter is called A Lot of Gas Sucking Pigs. And the quote <laughs> was from <laughs> Jeff Smizek, who was at the time uh, the, the number two at Continental, Continental's president. Uh, so he was speaking at a conference in 2006 bragging about Continental, which had a a fuel efficient, you know, young fleet. They would always tout that. I think people who flew Continental back then, we could even remember the safety video, the in-flight safety video. First it was Gordon Bethune and then Larry Kellner and, and later Smizek. And that was the first thing they would always say. Anyway, here was Smizek talking about other airlines. He said, we have a modern and fuel efficient fleet, unlike some of our competitors who've got a lot of gas sucking pigs. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and look, you know, the, the environmental benefits of, of, of new aircraft are clear and the operating cost benefit is clear. But on the other hand, yeah, here you have Delta, the most 
profitable airline in the world in terms of total net profit with a fleet of rather old planes. If, if you want to look, find the book, by the way, if you just go on Amazon and it's like it says, Glory Lost and Found, or you could probably do like Delta Book, Seth Kaplan, and you'll uh, you'll find it. Let me know what you think if you do get a chance to read it, if you haven't already done so. But finally, Ben, I, I did look up. I just wanted to make sure that the that the premise of all this was still true. I know that Delta always had the older fleet. I, I looked it up in CH Aviation, the average fleet age of the big three U.S. carriers. Uh, sure enough, Delta is still over 15 years on average. American, as you might expect, if you're familiar with anybody who knows that they ordered a whole bunch of planes early this decade and have been taking them into their fleet very aggressively. American, on average, just 11 years old. United actually now is, is roughly even with Delta, actually fractionally older than Delta, also 15 and change, fractionally more. Uh, but I think once you get the maxes into the fleet, that, that would probably bring United uh, back below uh, Delta. But yeah, clearly Delta among airlines, among global airlines, one of the older fleets. Now at cruise altitude here on Airlines Confidential, it's time for that embarrassing correction and a complaint during fine or wine. Questions, concerns? We've got all the feedback next. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. First of all, Ben, you were just telling me something during the break. You said that you had a thought while I was plugging the book there, the the Delta book, that you were about to say something that might have been funny, but you thought it might have been mean. And you would have every right to be mean today based on how we started this show, making fun of the, the Olbermann thing. And actually, I thought it was funny. What was it that you were going to say? Well, what uh, I was going to say is uh, if anybody really wants to read Seth's book, my copy is on eBay right now for 99 cents. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And of course, Ben is completely joking. There, there is no used copy of the book anywhere available. Just don't don't look too hard to verify that. <laughs> well, Ben, finer wine is next. But first, time for that embarrassing correction. Ben, uh, you'll recall an episode or two ago, we got that correction, really more of a clarification about the New York LaGuardia perimeter rule. We said Denver, which normally would be too far for a flight from LaGuardia, was exempt. Really, it was grandfathered from before the rule, not exempt from the rule, because unlike at Reagan National Airport in Washington, there are no weekday exemptions per se at LaGuardia. Other people, by the way, subsequently emailed to point out that on Saturday, you can fly pretty much wherever the hell you want from LaGuardia. That's true, too. But now we have a much more serious correction, more of an allegation, really, Ben, that you were playing fast and loose with an important fact. Friends, you might remember a few weeks ago, we got a question from somebody in Taborg, New York, and Ben said he was born there. Well, I want to read you this email from Joe in Framingham, Massachusetts. The subject line of the email is Ben's birthplace. Joe writes... Correction, for the record, Ben was not born in Tayburg, New York. He was born at the Griffiths Air Force Base Hospital in Rome, New York, about 10 miles or so east of Tayburg. The family moved to Tayburg shortly thereafter. Best of luck with the podcast, Ben's older brother, Joe Baldanza. (laughs) Ben, is this true? Well, it is true, and I have to thank my older brother, Joe, for uh, pointing this out. 
you know, and for listening said, to the podcast, that's the best part of all. <laughs> that is right. You know, I said I was born in Taborg. What I should have said is I was raised in Taborg because our family moved to Taborg literally when I was days old after being born at the Griffiths Air Force Base Hospital. In fact, I think the hospitals in Rome were the closest hospitals to Taborg. I don't think Taborg has a hospital. <laughs> so I think everyone who raised in Taborg is born in Rome. <laughs> and so, um, so yes, I was raised in Taborg, but I was not born in Taborg, and I appreciate that my older brother, not really, but I appreciate that my older brother <laughs> pointed this out. <laughs> I'm sure he relished the opportunity. Ben, can anybody ever again trust anything they hear on this show? Well, you know, of course, because the idea of saying you're born someplace versus raised in someplace, what, how is that relevant to an airline podcast? <laughs> if we were a genealogy podcast or something like that, maybe. But I think we try to get the airline stuff right. <laughs> and uh, if we mess up a ben, few days, how would you like it if your pilot okay. mistook a runway for one that was 10 miles away? Oh, good point. That's a bad thing. And I remember when Delta did that in Kentucky back in the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> happened a few times over the years, hasn't it? <laughs> well, do you have a question for us? You can call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. Again, 305-379-7429. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or do what Ben's brother Joe did. Jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website and you'll see a form on there to submit your question. Beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for fine or wine. And Ben, first I want to say, I realized after we recorded last week's show, uh, we wished everybody a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa. We left out one important holiday. Ben, uh, did you watch Seinfeld back when that was popular? Of course I did. I was a big fan. We forgot to wish everyone a happy Festivus. Festivus for the rest of us. Exactly. So a a happy Festivus to you and yours. And that's especially relevant to the show because here we do fine or wine every week, which is essentially an airing of grievances. So in, in honor of Festivus, uh, here's this week's airing of grievances. Let's hear an actual customer complaint and then talk about uh, whether the complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Now, today we want to do something a little different. Ben, you have the complaint. Yes, I do. This one was from a few months ago, not on Festivus. It says, <laughs> I purchased a basic ticket from Atlanta to Indiana, had no idea United doesn't include overhead space for one piece of luggage with the ticket price. What a way to turn a $266 ticket into a $350 ticket. Very misleading. Didn't know United was a low budget airline. What a very money hungry practice. We'll never fly United again. Now, if you think that sounds like a broken record, don't check your podcast app to make sure you're really listening to a new episode. Yes, we've had this discussion before about basic economy in general and about United in particular. The point, Ben, and the reason we're saying this again is that clearly this is a common complaint nowadays against basic economy and against United, which is different from American and Delta. Now, to be fair, some people don't fly all that regularly, and basic economy is a relatively new thing the last few years. So if you haven't flown in a few years, which is very possible, you might be surprised that you can buy a ticket that doesn't include a carry-on bag. Um, but I'm going to call this one a wine nonetheless. And the reason is because in researching this particular case, I went to United's website, and I said, I want to fly from Atlanta to Indianapolis. And sure enough, it showed me a basic economy fare 
and said very clearly, very restrictive underneath that. And the fare was like $245, very close to what this person paid. And uh, then it offered me a fare, a normal economy fare for about $30 or $40 more. And it put that in green, basically saying, you want to buy this fare. And so I selected the basic economy fare and it wouldn't just take me to the screen to pay for it. What it did was it popped up a dialogue box and it showed a table and it says, are you sure you want this basic economy fare? And it showed a table and it listed five things with a big X, meaning it's not available in this fare. And if you just pay us 30 or $40 more for the normal economy, you're gonna get all these things. And one of those things is a carry on bag. And so I don't think this customer could have bought this fare without having it in his face that he's not getting the carry-on bag. Now, he may have ignored it. He may have not read what he was clicking through. Maybe he didn't buy it on United.com and saw that warning in a little different way if he bought it from Expedia somewhere else. But I think the industry has gotten good and United particularly does this very well at explaining that if you buy basic economy, you don't get everything. And the reason they explain it so well, Seth, is they don't want you to buy the basic economy. They want you to pay them the higher price for a ticket that gives you their full product. Absolutely. And okay, now with the time we save going through that quickly, I want to do something a little different here. Usually we have fun drilling down into the merits of one complaint even more deeply than we did just there. That, of course, we've discussed many times. Let's take a step back now and look at the data and which airlines generate the most complaints overall to see if the anecdotes and what we think and feel corroborate uh, what's actually going on out there. These are consumer complaints per 100,000 employments, so controlling for the size of the airline, for the first nine months of 2019. And the top of the list, Southwest Airlines generated just 035 complaints per 100,000. Really remarkable considering that Southwest had the issues with the MAX and it had other operational issues, but somehow still managed to come out at the top of the heap, down at the bottom from worst to just slightly less worse. So getting ready for that worse, worser discussion in a minute about Keith Olbermann. <laughs> uh, Spirit was the worst by that metric with about three complaints per 100,000. It's about nine times as many per employment as Southwest. Uh, Frontier right there. Allegiant not far behind, although American was even a little bit worse uh, than Allegiant. Alaska and Delta, by the way, were both not far behind Southwest. So that kind of jives with what, with what you might think, right? You ask people what their favorite airline is, you'll hear names like Southwest, Alaska, Delta, and all of them are near the top. Uh, JetBlue, kind of middle of the pack, uh, United, too. So, Ben, with those ultra-low-cost carriers being three of the four worst, what I'm wondering is, you know, is this people mostly expecting a Cadillac even though they paid for a Yugo, or is this mostly those airlines really doing things that no airline should do regardless of how little people paid? It's a little of both, Seth. People complain about a lot of things in their airline travel, and most of it is quite appropriate uh, to complain about. But there are two things about the low-cost airlines, the ultra-low-cost airlines, that make it more likely people will complain in the kind of things that affect this Department of Transportation metric. One is that they operate what are known as very thin schedules, meaning that they fly only one or two frequencies a day in most of the markets they serve. That means if they cancel a flight, they have virtually no way to get the customer where they're going until sometimes days later. 
And since they tend to run very full, it may take many days to get yeah. them out. Because of that, they tend to delay more than cancel. They will say, I will run the flight four hours late because I have no other way of taking care of these passengers. Conversely, a Southwestern American that has a lot of frequency, if they have to cancel, say, a noontime flight, they may have five, six, or even seven flights later that same day to protect all the people. So they'll go ahead and cancel it and put somebody on a later flight. So for on time and for cancellations, it's harder for the low cost carriers. The second thing is because their pricing structure tends to be more unbundled. The likelihood of a surprise about what you don't get or what you have to pay for is higher than on an all bundled airline like a Southwest. And so the, you know, no one at Southwest is going to be surprised they have to pay for their bag because they don't charge for bags. Whereas someone could buy a ticket on Frontier and be surprised that they have to pay for their bag if they've, you know, been, living with their head in the sand for the last couple of years, right? But the point is the low-cost carriers um, manage people's expectations in a way that can create this misstep at times, and they have these really thin schedules, so there's going to be likely more complaints. Now, I will ask you, Seth, if you ran a restaurant and out of every 100,000 customers, three of them said they didn't like your food, are you going to fire your chef? No, I think I'm doing a pretty good job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's exactly right. Because out of 100,000, even three isn't that bad. Admittedly, three is a lot more than 0.35. But all the airlines generally do a pretty good job in not getting a lot of complaints for the number of people. Right. And now I'm care. sure somebody out there is thinking, well, of course, not everybody who's unhappy takes the time to complain to the government. So, so you know, there, there are some other people who aren't. But, but that's true. It seems like. Well, that's true, but that's true for the 0.35 as well as the three carriers. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> and, and the reality is that we've talked about in the past that uh, even if people might not like certain things about these airlines, I don't think they'd be in business if overall they weren't providing a, a certain amount of value to people. And, I, and I'm just glad that consumer choice exists. I've flown on, I've flown every one of those airlines at, at different times in my life for different reasons, and uh, there, you know, there are times when those basic economy products on the legacy airlines or when the ultra low cost carriers themselves uh, just uh, basically enabled my family to take a trip that we might not have otherwise taken a discretionary trip. We have one who's coming up in uh, late January. I think I mentioned also in the past flying down on spirit to Tampa back basic economy on United. And uh, we saved hundreds of dollars and I'm okay with not getting a a seat assignment until later. Well, now on final approach, I want to come back to Ben's ignominious honor of being Keith Olbermann's second worst person in the world. Olbermann used to do this on his show. There was a worst person in the world every night, plus a couple of runners up, uh, you know, the worser, right? <laughs> and, uh, and what would be the sort of the silver medal winner or loser? Well, here's a clip from MSNBC's countdown with Keith Olbermann from way back on January 19th, 2009. Our runner-up, Ben Baldanza, president and CEO of Spirit Airlines. Jeff Kalaje and his brother Rob and four friends were supposed to fly Spirit from New York to a golf holiday at Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. But Spirit canceled the flight and rebooked them onto U.S. Air, onto Flight 1549. Yes, it's that Jeff Kalaje, the guy in the hat everybody interviewed after Flight 1549 splashed down in the Hudson last week. 
Needless to say, the Collage party did not need their six return tickets from Myrtle Beach to New York in so much as they only got as far as the Hudson Piers. When he phoned to cancel those return flights, Collage was told by Spirit Airlines that the cancellation would cost him $90 in extra fees and would he please give them his credit card number. He pointed out that his credit card is still on flight 1549 on a barge in the Hudson River. We would point out that Spirit was essentially trying to charge the Collage party for a plane crash. After this went public, the airline said this afternoon it would not attempt to collect the fees. Ben, do you remember that incident? Well, I do, yeah. Seth, although I was trying to forget it. <laughs> so, yeah, so take me through it. What what happened there? Was that your conscious decision to charge those people for a plane crash? As Holberman, not slightly exaggeratedly, perhaps or not, said. Well, I think we have to ask our listeners or I have to ask our listeners to like, sort of think back to January 2009. That was a long time ago. And that was only about two years into the what is now called the ultra low cost carrier business model or ULCC business model that Spirit implemented. And in that time, there were a couple of things that Spirit was dealing with. When I first went to Spirit, a customer that I had had when I was at U.S. Airways called me and said, Ben, um, congratulations for taking on this role at Spirit. I, I've flown Spirit sometimes, and I want to let you know what customers think about Spirit. And I said, well, that's great. What do they think? And he said, well, they think two things. They said, the flights are always late, and if you complain loudly enough, you can get a refund. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so I said, well, thanks for letting me know that. And so we worked at trying to get the flights not so late. Right. Um, but more importantly, we recognized that we had to do a better job at sort of tightening up what is known as leakage in the industry, which means, you know, revenue that doesn't come in because you waive a fair rule or give a refund when maybe you didn't have to or something like that. And so we sort of went overboard and said, as we're implementing this model, we're going to be very restrictive and we're going to hold to rules. And our teams were trained to do that. The team that sort of asked this customer for the uh, for the money that they owed when Spirit canceled a flight and put them on a U.S. Airways plane <laughs> that crashed into the in, into the river, the Sully plane. Right? I, they at the time they asked for that payment, they didn't realize that it happened to that customer. Right? They 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 knew the customer had been canceled, but they didn't know they were on a plane that crashed. Once the airline sort of figured out, oh, it's this customer that this happened with, they they said, look, we, we're not going to collect this money. They clearly should have caught that up front. They didn't. So I get it. I still find it hard to believe that I was the second worst person in the world that day, right? There must have been some dictator some in the world who killed exactly. 100,000 people that day or something, right? Well, that's show business, just like airline podcasts, right? That's right. Did somebody come to you and say, Ben, you got to hear what we did now? Like, do you remember that moment? Oh, yeah, I remember it very well. And uh, after we realized that we ended up doing the right thing and we figured out, well, how are we going to catch this the next time we laughed about it? And, you know, there's a saying that sometimes that any media is good media. Right. And at 2009, yeah, not a lot of people true. knew who Spirit was. And so it certainly got us on the national news. And in that sense, it wasn't that bad, because when people said, who is this airline? And they said, oh, this look cheap at airline. people money. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Uh, please fasten your seatbelt, ensure your seat backs and trade tables are in their upright and locked position. And remember, 
We'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website from the Airlines Confidential Studios. Wishing you a great 2020 health, happiness, prosperity. I'm Seth Kaplan. And happy Festivus from someone raised in Tayburg. I'm Ben Baldanza. Talk to you soon. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. Massmedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com.